something just awesome, okay? So here's what I want to do, and thanks for the clock and recording and all that. All right, here we go. Uh, how many people would say, I had a pretty good 2012? If you did, go ahead and raise your hand, okay? I mean, that's pretty good, right? Now, I do want to say, the people that didn't raise your hand, I'm not going to embarrass you by having you raise your hand. <laughs> because I know that particularly, and this is what we're going to be talking about today, I warned you in the weekly update, and I say warned because we're, this is a church talking about money, and I know that that's always a tricky thing for people. Not very tricky for me, frankly, and you'll see by the time that I'm done. But if you're new here and you're visiting and that kind of stuff, you know, I, I have a sensitivity to the sensitivity that you might have about churches and money and all that. But I just want you to understand this is so much greater than what has to do with money. This is just something God is trying to do in a way in order to really change your life. So that's what we're going after today. And, and I want you to think about something, which is these last few years, you know, maybe the end of 2012 was okay, but these last few years have been interesting. <laughs> even if things, even if you had some, you were, there was a nervousness and there was stuff, and there were other people where it was critical. You know, losing homes, jobs, what are you going to do? I mean, really critical stuff. Now, what I want to say is, is how many people would love to have a better 2013 financially than you did 2012? By the way, everybody's hand ought to go up because no matter how good it was last year, it'd be better if it was better, right? When the economy is working with you as it kind of is right now, right? The end of 2012 got better. When the economy is working with you, you get to be a fish swimming with the stream and you get the job and you, you have some money and you can spend some and do some, some things and so on. When the economy's bad then you're the fish swimming upstream. You're trying to make things work despite the headwinds, right? I'm mixing a metaphor there. But, but I just want us to do this. I, I got good news and bad news for you. Would you like the good news first or the bad news first? See, everybody always says bad news. I'm going to give you the good news first, okay? The good news is, is that the, end of, the beginning of 2013 is supposed to, by The Economist, is supposed to look roughly like the end of 2012 did, which means... You know, some reason for optimism, a little bit of hope, and, and a little bit more activity. Now, the reason for that, in economic terms, I'm not going to go into great depth on this, but the primary reason for that is something called pent-up demand. What that means, very simply, is this. When the economy crashed in 2008 and 2009, and things, people lost their jobs, and things got really tough, and so on, whether you had money or not, you quit spending. You didn't replace the refrigerator that was going bad. You didn't replace the washer and dryer. You didn't buy a new car. You didn't get a television. You didn't, if something, if you didn't do maintenance on your house. Nobody did anything in 2009 and 2010 unless you absolutely had to. But then there comes a point in time after a few years where whatever it is, however bad it is, it kind of settles and people start thinking, geez, you know, I do have to replace. It would be nice to have a washer again. It would be nice to have the refrigerator that worked and didn't freeze my food all the time. It'd be, and so they get a little bit of confidence and they go out and buy things. And when you go buy things, then you've got to make more things so people get hired and the economy starts looking better, right? And that's what the beginning of 2013 is supposed to look like. But I just want to tell you what the end of 2013 is supposed to look like based on virtually every economist that you can read. The end of 2013 is looking like it's likely to be a recession again. Now, it, it may not get all the way down to negative growth, which is a recession, but, it, but it, it's going to be very close to that. And it isn't going to be, they say, like it is right now. And the reason why is because pent-up demand lasts only so long. People are still nervous. They only buy so much. It starts to trail off. When it starts to trail off, people start losing their job. People get afraid again. They start deferring expenses again. They start deferring their purchases. 
And so at the end of 2013, the, the fact is about the economy, we have, we have a debt problem that is so much larger than what anybody in Washington seems to understand. I mean, I know they do. They're not dumb. But they're afraid of losing their jobs or something. But nobody's dealing with it. Not really. We're dealing with 1.1%. We're dealing with like 0.1% of it. You know, there's this huge debt problem. There's a fundamental change in the, how the world is working in China and all that and trade balances and everything to where that's coming in. And frankly, we did what we call a soft landing from the financial crisis. And what a soft landing means is, is that you make it not be quite so hard for people right away, which just means it's going to be harder for them longer. Right? And I think soft landing, that's a reasonable thing to talk about. We could talk about it and so on. But the fact is, is if you crash it really hard, then people really get hurt. And a soft landing, there's some value in that. So we soft landed it, but it means Japan went through this, guys. We're not the first people to experience this. Japan just came out of it a few years back. They, they financial shenanigans, literally financial instruments that were very complicated, were created huge wealth in Japan. Their housing prices did just like ours did, went way through the roof, ridiculously expensive housing prices, and then the whole thing burst. And when it burst, they did the same thing we did. They crashed, and then they thought they were getting better, but it was pent-up demand, and it went back down, and, then, and they literally have a 10-year period of time that they call the lost decade. And it took them 10 years to recover from what had happened when the bubble burst. It took them 10 years to get back to where they were, pretty much where they were. And even that wasn't at the high-flying levels that they were before. Because the high-flying levels were artificial. See, are we getting this? Now, there is a reason why I'm actually telling you all this. This isn't an economics lab, okay? There is a reason that I'm telling you this, because here's what happens. When you hear what I'm talking about, you know, 2013 being tough again, you really can have one of three responses. The first one is, is that you can kind of just say, as people do say, you know, look, here's the thing about economists. I don't really trust them because an economist is an expert who will know tomorrow why the things he predicted yesterday didn't happen today. <laughs> right? So you can just be in denial about it. Here's a much better definition of an economist, by the way. An economic forecaster is like a cross-eyed javelin thrower. They don't win many accuracy contests, but they sure do keep the crowd's attention. <laughs> right? So what we can do is, is we can say, I don't really trust those economic forecasters. They're always wrong, and so we end up sticking our head in the sand. We can just deny whatever it is that's out there. It turns out, by the way, ostriches are actually smarter than human beings because they're not actually hiding their head in the sand but from danger. He's just eating. They eat bugs, and they need rocks to digest. So when they stick their head in there, they're not like, they're not, you know, the, the old saying is stick your head in the sand. It means there's danger, so if you don't see it, it must not be danger. It turns out ostriches don't stick their head in the sand. People do. <laughs> right? It's called denial. Right? Nobody wants to deal with what's actually happening. Right? In Washington or here in Bellevue. So you just, you just, you know, do the best you can and hope it works out. Right? It's a kind of denial. So you can do that. The second thing you can do, of course, is you can just hop in the boat of the economy of the world and you can just float along and when it goes through white, white rapids, you know, you're getting wet. And when it's in nice places, then they are in nice places, and you can just go along with it. There is a third option for a Christian. Honest to God, and we're going to show you this by the time we're done today, there is a truly real, not fantastical, not mythical, not made up, not hoping, not kind of another kind of denial. There really is a third option. Anyone who listens to my teaching knows it is wise. 
like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. Though the rain comes in and torrents and floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. The real rock. Not the stuff that seems real, the economy. It'll be built on God. Anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey, actually that's foolish. It may seem foolish to the world that you'd obey, but the truth is it's foolish to not do what he's saying. Like a person who builds a house on sand. Then the rains and the floods, the economy turns bad and so everything happens. The winds beat against that house and it collapses with a mighty crash. That's what the world does. And what God is saying to us is there is a way to build your house on a totally different foundation. How many would like that to happen? <laughs> How many would like to build your house on the rock? I'm not saying you're going to be like rich and everybody else is going to be poor. Don't be silly about this. What I'm saying is it won't matter what happens in the world, even if it got to the worst predictions of the worst economist or the worst survivalist. It wouldn't matter. Because you're built on the one who's greater than all of that by far. This sermon is about building a solid foundation for 2013. And really, if I said it the way it's really in my heart, this is about trying something out for 2013 so that for the rest of your life, you learn how great it is to build your house on the right rock that survives all. So that's where we're headed today. Very important sermon. This is a great person to pray for this first one of the year. Mario Vallada, wherever you are, uh, thank you. This is a man who's trusted God with his whole life and gone through the ups and downs of it and everything else and loves God with all of his heart. This, is a, this would be one of the people, if I was to stand people up and say, are there people in here that get what I'm about to talk about? He's one. So Mario, pray for it, would you? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to be here this new year, Lord God. And, um, you know, as Kurt was talking about all these things, um, I was wondering where he was going with it. And, you know, in reality, it is something that we all need to know, um, you know, who you are and how to uh, stand with you. Know that you're standing with us, more importantly, and uh, going through whatever it is with us. Thank you, Lord. And, um, Father God, I just pray that you would use Kurt to um, get this message uh, across in Thank a way you. that... Um, everyone can understand and, and have um, faith and courage, Lord God, to, Amen. to go through that. Amen. And Lord God, I would like to lift up um, this little church in Boston, Lord God, that uh, my Amen. daughter goes to. Amen. It is very, um, just a little church that deals with very smart people that go to all the very huge... Uh, um, universities over there and it's a tough job you know uh, people coming and going and, and trying to reach um, the very top of the intellectual tiers Lord God for you and so I'd like to lift them up and ask that you would uh, that your word would find a footing there Lord God in Jesus amen name. amen great prayer Mario thank you all right now 
I've already told you that this sermon is going to be about giving. I told you in the weekly update. By the way, I want you to understand something. We do that because we want to partner with you in terms of bringing friends and neighbors and coworkers and so on. And if we're going to do a sermon on giving, that's probably not the one you really want to invite the people you've been trying to get to come for six months, right? You know what I mean? I mean, I think they'll actually get a lot out of it if they'll be open to it, but the problem is people aren't, you know? They just have issues. And so it's okay, so we participate with you in that. That's why I inform you about what the topics are coming and tell you whether it's a good week to bring somebody or not. I said this is one that was, you know, at your own risk, okay? So if your friend brought you here, they apparently felt like you were mature enough to handle this, so thank you, you'll love it, okay. Now, now, the thing that I want you to get a hold of is, is we're talking about giving, but I, I want to make it very clear. This isn't actually about giving. This is about an area of our life where the rubber meets the road. This is about an area of our life where God knows that it's difficult for us. I, I want to make something clear here. God, Jesus, talked about giving more than any other subject, except one, more than heaven and hell combined. He talked about giving. Why? Well, we're going to see it in great detail, but the bottom line is, is that he's trying to get us to understand something. He knows that there is this kingdom of the world, this black box, and I'm standing behind it, I'm standing in the world. He knows that this is the reality, the logic, the rationale, the economy, the things that we do. He knows that this is something that we have come out of as we accepted him, and we became part of the kingdom of God. When we become part of the kingdom of God, what happens is we're, we're of the kingdom of God, but we're still in this world, right? And so what happens is, is that to varying degrees, our head is sort of in the kingdom of God stuff and the way that it works that God promises and we'll see, or it's still back over in here about how things work over here. See it? So what he's doing is, is he's saying, I get that one of the major things in your life, see, we can believe all kinds of things about prayer and healing and all kinds of spiritual stuff, and we can do all that kind of stuff and really believe that we're right here. But when it comes to money, name me one other thing that pulls a person more into the old. That's why he talked about it so much, because he's trying to pull us out of the old. He's trying to put us in the new in a way that is glorious and incredible, as you'll hear. But you see that? Now, I do want to say something. As I talk about this, what I'm not going to talk about is tithe and offerings. And I talk about that all the time. And not all the time, but I, when I talk about it, I, I believe that the spirit of the tithe is for the New Testament. I absolutely believe that. I'm not going to talk about it because there's plenty of people that just don't believe that. And what they end up doing is arguing about a little bitty wave when there's a whole stinking ocean out there that we should be talking about. And I just don't want to get caught up in the wave. But quickly, I need to just rehearse with you, just it'll only take two seconds, what a tithe is and what an offering is because it'll become important at the very end. Here's what a tithe is. This is an Old Testament concept. I believe it to be a New Testament one. Some people do, some people don't. I don't really care. Here's what I really care about. I care that when you fill out your taxes in 2012, that whatever number it is that you gave is greater than 10% of what your total income was that year. That's what I care about. Because if it is the likelihood is that you're experiencing the things that we're going to be talking about that God promises and that are true and real about this new kingdom. If it's less than that, you're, you're giving away money and, and it's not really working for you and you can't figure out why not. And so you think it's not true. And I'm trying to get us out of that mentality entirely. 
So here's what a tithe is. A tithe is very simply this. It's something that's not under your control. You don't get to choose where to give it. You don't get to choose how much. He tells you it's 10% and you give it to your local storehouse, which in modern times is the church. If you don't agree with that, I don't care. I can argue it scripturally with you. It doesn't matter to me. That's what I believe the spirit of the tithe is. And the bottom line is the reason why God is doing that is one thing. He's trying to bring in so much resources of money and people and time and energy that the church manifests the image of God in the community. That's what he's trying to do in a church. Churches are funded to about 1.7 to 1.3 to 1.7%. A really good church like ours may get close to three. That still means there's three times less resources than what God intended. If we had three times the resources we did, what would we do with them? What do we already do with them? Just look at what we're already doing, because that's how you're always going to tell. You always think you're going to do better next time. You always think you can do better if. But I, we're trying to figure out at this church how, without embarrassing people, to start showing you the numbers of people that we're reaching and touching that don't even go to this church, in people in the community. We are one of those churches where if we disappeared, there's a whole lot of people that would feel it. And when people have a negative assessment of Christians and Christianity, these people don't because they know what God has been doing for them. They don't even know God, most, many of them. And this church does an amazing work, and Chris Maddox is sort of the, the anointed leader paradigm, but there's many people in this church that have participated in this in an incredible way, and I know lots of what you've done, and again, I can't, you know, I don't want to steal your blessing and all that kind of stuff, but that's what a tithe is for. It's to manifest God in this incredible way that isn't happening, because it's not happening that the tithe is there. Now, the offering is something that's totally under your control. This is something where God is saying, you know, you have a person or an organization or something that you really want to help out, do that. You know what I mean? Give there too. 10%, if the tithe is not actually for the New Testament, here's why. Because in the Old Testament, he wanted 10%, and the New Testament, he wants 100. (laughs) Okay? That's the truth. That's how that little equation actually is working. But what ends up happening is, well, I don't have to do the spirit of the tithe, and so I give 5%. And as we're going to see today, I'm just telling you, there's a major hurt that you're doing to yourself. I mean this. I'll tell you why experientially, and I'll tell you why scripturally as we get into it. But I want you to see this. I want you to just catch this this thought, though. See, look, Paul's saying this, or I'm sorry, uh, this might have been Peter. In everything I've done, I think it was Paul. In everything I've done, I've demonstrated to you how necessary it is to work on behalf of the weak and not exploit them. You'll not likely go wrong here if you keep remembering what our master Jesus said. You are far happier giving than getting. Now, we're going to hold on to that truth because Jesus is going to talk to us a whole lot about give to get, which is not actually what he wants us to do. But there is an aspect of that that is absolutely in play. So I just want you to catch it at the very beginning. What he's saying is, what he's trying to do is he's trying to get us so much into what it is to live in the kingdom of God that we start experiencing the different economy, the different reality, the miracles that become so common that they're normal. Because that's what God intended. After all, he did put us in a garden. He didn't ask us to get a job so we could afford the fruit in the garden. What he did is he put us in a garden. He provided all things for us, and that was his intent. In the fall, by the sweat of our brow, we earn. 
And that captures us in more ways than just slavery. It captures our imaginations and our minds and our thoughts and what we think of as being real. And what Jesus has done is he has come in the New Testament and he is trying to show us a different way. So what we're going to do today is I'm not going to go back to the Old Testament at all about this, even though I think there's a lot of rich stuff to talk about and have one other times. Today I'm going to stick just totally with the New Testament. I want you to hear what Jesus and the Holy Spirit have to say about this subject. And even then we're only scratching the surface. But the bottom line, it's a pretty good scratch. All right? So here we go. Remember this one? We just did it. Anyone who listens to my teachings and follows is wise? There's a principle we need to get out of this, and here it goes. Anyone who listens to my teachings and follows it is wise. We can agree with that, right? Anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Can we drill that down a little bit more? If you listen and follow, you're wise. If you hear and you don't obey, it's foolish. Uh, let's just go all the way with it. This is what's being said in here. If you had to, you know, shorten it down. Follow and obey. We hear a lot of stuff. We do the stuff that we think makes sense. And it's on both sides of this line that we, what we think makes sense. And so we don't actually obey. We don't actually fall. All right. Now, I've been talking about these two kingdoms. Here he is. No one can be a slave of two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. This is why I tell you, don't worry about your life. Now, what kingdom do you think he's talking about right now of the two? Don't worry about your life. This is this kingdom. Watch. Don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, your body, what you're going to wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. Now watch this. He's put analogies in the world for us to see, to know who he is. It plays out in the world already. We don't think it works that way, but yet nature itself works that way. They don't sow or reap or gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than a bird? Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? That's finances, right? Most of us worry about finances. I do, right? And I know this stuff. Why do you worry about clothes? Learn about the wild, wildflowers of the field. Don't, they don't labor, spin, thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the fire, the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? Oh, you of little faith, understanding, trust, obedience. See? Don't worry what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear. Look, people who don't know God do that. <laughs> they eagerly seek for these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does his righteousness mean? Seek first what it is to stand right with God. That means hear, follow, obey. Seek first that and everything else gets added to you. That's not true. See, I have bills, and if I don't pay my bills, then my heat gets turned off or I get thrown out on my bum. That's real. 
This God stuff is real too, but come on, let's get real. See it? Here's what God has just said. Seek me, I'll take care of all of that. Do you actually trust me? Will you actually do what I'm saying? Right? Will you follow and obey? All right? So here's the most important thing that he ever said about this particular topic. Give and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. That will be poured into your lap. How many would like that? For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, where's the emphasis in this little statement here? Is it at the very beginning, give? Is that what he's talking about, giving? Yeah, but that's not where the emphasis is. If you're telling a joke, where do you put the punchline? At the end. Where do you put the revelation if you're telling a story? The point of the story. You put it at the end. So what you got to do is you got to go, with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. No, that's not true. See, yeah, I'm on this kingdom, but my head's over here. And look, I make X amount of dollars a month. And, and you know, X, my, whatever, part of that goes to my rent. Part of that goes to my utilities. And part of that goes to groceries. And part of that goes to other necessities and so on. And I don't have any money left. With the measure you use, it'll be measured back. What, God's just going to, what, there's going to be a tree that grows in my backyard with cash on it? No, but yeah. You'll see this. In fact, let's t just dig a little deeper here. See, I think everybody wants pressed down, shaken together, and running over, poured into the lap. I think everybody would like that. Now, the, one of the reasons why we would like that is for our own flesh. Okay? You know what? We're just going to leave that aside for the time. That's not why God's doing it. But I just want to leave it aside for the time, and I want to say, if you want pressed down, shaken together, running over, what is this verse that God said? Jesus is God. God is trying to say something to you. If you want it pressed down and running over, what do you have to do? Give. <laughs> right? I mean, this is not like really complicated stuff. Give, and it will be given to you. Here's what he's saying. I know what your budget is. By the way, if you don't have a budget, that's just presumptuous. Have a budget. Be wise. Be smart. Be really smart, though. Don't just be smart in the world's stuff. Be smart in the God's stuff. Understand that God is trying to tell you something. There's a different economy that you get into when you get into this kingdom. There's a different reality that comes to you in this kingdom. I'm 19 years old. I've inherited a lot of money. I can do anything that I want to do. Then I come to Christ. I bought cars. I bought homes. I bought all kinds of stuff. I did anything that I wanted to do. I was having a great time. I got a lot of pleasure out of the things that I did. Some of it was good. Some of it wasn't so good. But the bottom line was, is that even, even till now, I look back at a lot of things that I was able to do when I was young like that, and it was a lot of fun. It brought me a lot of pleasure. I need you to hear something, though. And for this, you're just going to have to trust me. I'm not making this up because I'm a pastor. I'm telling you, when I became a Christian, there was one thing that I was able to start doing that I'd never done before that gave me more pleasure than anything I ever did. And not just then, but now, 30-some years later, writing a check to my church. I know that may sound stupid to people, but I didn't grow up in a church. 
I didn't have any understanding of what a hypocrisy or hypocritical or I didn't have damaged and I didn't have all this kind of stuff. What I had was is a lot of darkness in my life that I didn't even know to be darkness. And I had the way that the world worked and I had all this kind of stuff. And when I came into the kingdom of light at 19 years old, man, it was dark to light. It was light on, oh my God, this is incredible. And I'm telling you, every time that I wrote out a tithe check or an offering, because I did that too to church and to other people and so on, every time I got to write one of those checks, I was so happy. When God says he wants a cheerful giver, this is what he's talking about. It brought me joy. I'm telling you, all these years later, the thought that I was able to do that all those years brings me joy. I'm so thankful that I did that. I told you a couple of weeks ago, one of the biggest regrets in my life, the biggest regret in my life is that at 19 years old when I got saved, I didn't immediately go into what God had called me to be, which was a pastor. It took me another 20 years. God loves me. He got me there. It's fine. But the bottom line is that's the biggest regret. The second biggest regret is I sold, as I told you, and I won't reiterate the story, but I sold a very large asset, and I was going to tithe off of it. I couldn't wait to. I was so joyful to do it. And then circumstances changed, as they will, and all of a sudden it became kind of difficult. I thought to myself, well, you know, there was this big asset sitting out of there that brought me a lot of income, and out of that income I would pay my tithe. So I'm just taking that money and I'm moving it over here and out of the income that comes out of that, I'll tithe again. So doesn't that make perfect sense to you? How is that un, unright? Now I'm not talking legalistically here. I don't have any, I have so little legalism in my body, I, I, it's bad. Okay, it'd be better if I had a little bit more of it, right? I just, it wasn't that, it was a joy and I was so looking forward to giving this very large tithe and then because of circumstances, I told you, I went ahead and I shifted over here and the truth is, even when I was doing it, I could feel a darkness. This wasn't, I was stealing, now listen to this, I was stealing the joy from myself. <laughs> God wasn't mad at me. <laughs> it was just me that was losing out. Because I wasn't trusting him. I wasn't really here yet. In that story, he says this. See, there, 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 a rich young ruler comes to him. I, this, is, this was me. I want to show you how much this was me. And I'm not the rich young ruler, but I'm just saying there's a big, big time parallel here. So what happens is this rich young ruler comes and says, what must I do to be saved? You know, inherit eternal life. Oh, it's just keep all the commandments. That's what Jesus says. You know what? I'm doing all that. <laughs> I couldn't have said that, okay? But he says, just do that kind of stuff. And, and then the guy says, I'm doing all that. And it was true. Jesus didn't confront him on it. And then he said, there's only one thing you lack. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the guy has to turn away. Now, can I tell you, before I lost everything, about probably five years before I lost everything, I was uh, in Philadelphia, I was in, um, no, I'm sorry, in Delaware, and I was at a place where I was losing weight. I was at a fat farm or whatever, and I was trying to lose weight, right? And, and I was there, and I was getting healthy, and I was really seeking God, and it was really good, and all of a sudden, the Lord spoke to me, and what he said was, is he said, I had two large things that were kicking off the primary income that I had. There's several other assets too. But I had two, and he told me, sell one of them and give the money away. Now I'm 25, maybe 26, somewhere in there. You know what I mean? And I, I heard that, and I just, I couldn't do it. I mean, bottom line is, I figured it all out, how, you know, God really didn't mean that, and all that kind of stuff. But the truth is, that's what he was asking me to do. 
you know, when the rich young ruler walked away, Jesus, in another stating of it, said, he looked upon him sadly. He really loved the guy. I want to tell you how much God loved me. I said no to what he told me to do. And he didn't quit. <laughs> now the answer was I ended up losing everything. I really believe that I could have done that and I would have learned what he wanted me to learn and my life would have been different because of that. And when the big thing happened where I lost everything, I need to tell you. I looked back at that moment and I said, this is your love. This is not your fist. This is you are trying to teach me. I, didn't, I wasn't willing to go with you then, but I'm going with you now. No more accurately, he didn't give up on me. <laughs> in love, he wanted to bring me into what this really means. And I've been on a journey ever since because of it. I was the rich young ruler and he didn't give up. In fact, watch this, see. Oops. Uh, yeah, I'll do it now. I want you to look at that. Here's what I think God is doing. Here's what Jesus is doing. When Jesus comes to us and says, I skipped a part, so I'm going back. Okay. When, when Jesus says, give to get, do you think that God was trying to tell us the reason to give is to get? Do you think that that's what he's trying to say? Well, then why did he say it? You know why? Think about who Jesus is. Jesus is that part of the Godhead who comes and demonstrates that he knows what we're going through in our tough struggles and our tough decisions. He's that part of the Godhead which has emptied himself of the fullness that he might demonstrate that he knows our struggles, that he knows that we have bills, that we have problems, that we have issues, that we have these things. He's the one that comes in an intermediate way. And, and let me put it like this, see? God would love to come to you and say, I want you to live in this place where you are just giving generously and where you are just pouring out and I am pouring into you because you're a trustworthy vessel to pour out from. By the way, do a little study for yourself sometime and find out about people that have been very wealthy and most of them We'll have incredible stories of being givers way before they became wealthy. An outstanding example of that is Rick Warren. Rick Warren made a plot pact with his wife when they got married that every year they would increase their giving 1%, and they were doing exactly that, and then he wrote the best-selling book of all time. You want to know where the money comes from? Places you don't expect. And you can go not just Rick Warren, but you can go through person after person after person after person. When God finds a faithful vessel... It's a faithful vessel. <laughs> he can pour. So the fact of the matter is, I feel like what Jesus is doing when he's saying, look, I get that you can't get this. So I'm just trying to get you to get this. Do it because it's good for you. <laughs> Give to get. You don't test me in this, he says in the Old Testament. Only time I'll refer to the Old Testament, okay? I feel like it's the daddy in the pool. See how scared the little kid is? This is a perfect image, right? This is how we are as Christians. You know what I mean? And we're like, we're like, you know, I really want to jump. I really believe this stuff. But, but you know, and, and so we, it's like, you know, we're getting our foot and we're, you know, and everything else. And daddy's just looking and he's, Jesus is the one who's just saying, I get it. Come. I get it. I get it. Just come. Start it. It's going to go someplace that you never even imagined, but start it. What I want you to do is jump. <laughs> right? So back to the rich young ruler now. 
how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know why they're astonished? There's two reasons why people are rich in their minds. In ours too. They either steal from people, so they got rich off the backs of other people, or God blessed them. That's how we all think at some fundamental level, and they thought it very strongly. And they had the whole Old Testament about people that God loved, being blessed and making a lot of money and being very prosperous, right? Now all of a sudden, God, Jesus, is coming to them and saying, man, those people that get rich, it's really hard for them to get into the kingdom of heaven. Really hard. Why? If God comes to you and you have exactly to your name $10,000, and God comes to you and says, I want you to give $4,000 away. That's a pretty hard thing, right? But what if you have $4 million and God comes to you and says, I want you to give two of them away? Or whatever, they, you know, get it equal. Can I just tell you? It's really hard to give when you're poor. But it's actually really hard to give when you're rich. Unless it's just a little bit of it. But if you have to give half of your lifestyle away, this is hard. This is going to change your life in a major way. That was the situation that I was faced with. This was going to change. If I did this, it was going to change my life. Now, I think it would have changed my life for the much better, and I'm sorry I didn't do it. But at the time, it was giving away my livelihood, my life. It was giving away the life that I had and going to a totally different life. That's what it meant. So it's super hard to get in there. By the way, you'll hear people say the uh, camel through the eye of a needle is, is that the city gates were skinny so that an army couldn't ride in with all their weapons on the back of a camel. That's just not, that's somebody made that up. It's not true, okay? It, actually, actually, what is said is, is he said it's impossible but with God, he makes it possible. Now, I want to tell you that whole idea of unburdening yourself is roughly on point, so it's not a horrible story. You don't have to confront the next person that tells you that's what it means. But what I want to tell you is, is that what he's really talking about is you cannot get from here to there except that God brings you. And if he brings you, you can get here. But you can't get here by yourself. It's impossible. That's what he says. That's what God says. That's how we are. <laughs> he knows us. Now watch this. The disciples say, look, we've left everything to follow you. And I added these ellipses right here because I wanted you to see something. The way that it reads is, Peter's starting to say, look, Lord, we've left everything. And it's like he wants to say some more. And Jesus, knowing where he's going, just interrupts him. And what he says is, is he says, I assure you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house brothers, sister, mother, father, children, fields because of me and the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more in eternity, in heaven. Because after all, if we give, you know, we're not getting it back now. I mean, come on. The way the economy works, it doesn't work that way, right? And yet, what is God, Jesus, telling us? You get a hundred times back now. <laughs> At this time, once again, that give to get thought that he's got. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields. There are persecutions. Don't think that this means you're going to be all comfy, happily ever after. 
but you also get eternal life in the age to come. I just want to say, that's the best return on investment that has ever been offered anybody in the history of the world. There may have been some people who made even more money than that, but they didn't get eternal life too. And he's telling us about everything. See, it's not about money ultimately. It's about this whole thing of trying to get us in the, in where the rubber meets the road, trying to get us into a new kingdom. Remember this. See, we're, we could go into much more that Jesus says, but let's just head for what the Holy Spirit's saying through his scribes. This is what Paul says. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds, he gets a small crop. One who plants generously gets a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly in response to pressure. God loves a person who gives cheerfully, that kind of joy I was talking about. And God will generously provide all that you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. I just want to stop right there and pause. And I want to say, is that what people can say about us? Individually and corporately as a church. In some instances, yes. And in some instances, no. But understand where God's heart is. He really cares about helping people. And by the way, it's not the big program. It's helping the people that you can help one-on-one. But that's for another day. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. He provides the seed and then the bread. In the same way, he'll provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. Now, in order to be the fullness of generosity of the pouring out that God wants to do, what must you do? It says it right here in the thing. Plant generously. Here's another one. You Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts from my needs several times. Not that I was seeking the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. In other words, I'm not writing and telling you how good you did so that you'll send me more. I'm just telling you that when you did that, it was increasing to your account. I want you to understand how it's really working. And then he goes on. I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. I'm fully supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. What do you think happens when you please God? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> this is not complicated stuff. You please God. He just is trying to find somebody that he can pour out to that's going to be responsible, that's going to do the right things with it, that's not going to take it, and it ruined them. You know what wealth does with most people is kill them. That's why he can't make you as wealthy as you want. You think it'll be for your good and it'll actually end up in your harm. What God wants to do is to get you to be an entirely different human being that is pouring out. My God, and then when you do that, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now that's a statement that we use all the time. You know how we proof text, right, when we talk to each other? You're having a need, brother. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. There's a, there's a context to it. What's the context of it? He didn't say, God will supply everybody's need according to his riches and glory. He said to you people who are 
pouring out, who have learned this principle, who are pouring out like this, God is going to keep pouring in. That's what he's saying. And how much? According to his riches. How much do you think he's got? He's got the whole universe. <laughs> right? And thank you, Eric, for showing us that last week. Here's Timothy. See, again, there's so many more I could do, but teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money. That's what I'm trying to do right now. It's so unreliable. Oh, but you don't know how much money I have. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need so that we can just barely get by. All the way to our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Now, to some extent, that's clearly talking about heaven, isn't it? Eternal life, like we were talking about. But can I make it clear what true life really is and the way that the Bible talks about true life? When we get to heaven, that is the fullness of this one, and there ain't no more of this one. Right? We're fully here and we're not there anymore. Right? Right now, there's both this and that. But there doesn't have to be. Because as long as you can pull your head, as long as you can get your thoughts, as long as you can get your understanding back to what God said, to trust, then obey, and follow, you actually start living that life that he has for you for eternity. That's true life here and now, like you said earlier. See it? We've talked about a lot of things. I just need to give you one more part of my story and then I'm done. So, I went broke and then I went to grad school. And I stayed in grad school for four years. I got two different master's degrees, one in theology and one in basically philosophy, but it was script writing, and, and basically it was independent study because I was, a, I was a vacuum for knowledge. Now, that was four years. Then there was three years in Hollywood writing, trying to write. Then there was three years serving at my first church post. So that's a total of ten years, four, three, three. Ten years. I want to tell you, in 10 years, I had a total of 18 months worth of income from a job for me personally. In 10 years. And at the end of that 10 years, we had not a dime of debt. We had sent our kids to private Christian schools. We had done all kinds of things. We had also experienced poverty, which I suspect a lot of people in here have not experienced. We also experienced that too. But that was relative, relative to the good things that happened. There were moments in time. Now, I want you to understand something. Julie did work, but she never even made a quarter. She was doing spot work. She didn't have a, like a full-time job and providing for us. She was doing things, and she was raising two little kids. And frankly, we had enough to live on. Our family was helping us. Dave was one of the people. He's right here today. Our family, when we went broke, they went, you know, he wants to go to the seminary. We think he ought to go. We'll help him. But, but I want to tell you, in the four years that I was at seminary, including having to pay for the school, the help that I got from family was less than half of what I needed. 
So for four years, a family of four paying for graduate school, and that would include Julie's job too, there were at least, I'm, I was really trying to reflect on this, at least 40 to 50 different sources, miracles. I literally got an, a letter from a person that I have never met or nor talked to, and they didn't know who I was, and they didn't know anybody that I knew. And they wrote me a letter, and they said, I was praying, and God put your name in my heart and told me that you went to Regent University. And he, and he told me to write this check to you, and I tracked you down, and here's the check. And that was just one. I had it over and over and over and over. Four years, paid for all the schooling. You know, kids were in school, a, a school that we had to pay for the whole nine yards. And again, I'm telling you, we had moments in there that were poor. Now, I do want to say something so that you don't think I'm a total whatever. But I went there with a job. I just lost all my money. I knew I needed a job. And I went there with a job. I, I was in publishing, and they wanted to open up an academic publishing house. So the seminary that I was going to said, we're going to open up an academic publishing house, and you're going to run it. And I went there with that job. And I literally walked in thinking I was walking into a job. And the guy said, oh, nobody called you, huh? We don't have a job for you. We've decided not to do this academic publishing. We hooked up with Baker, and they're going to do it for us. So I went, okay, what do I do now, God? And Julie and I prayed. And here's what God said. He said, I want you to learn. I want you to just learn everything you can learn, and you're not going to have to work. Now, I learned. I started at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I worked until 6 o'clock at night, and at least, and I treated it just like a job, and I didn't run around and do what college kids do. I was too old for that, and I had a family, and I needed to provide. And the fact was, is I was a stinking sponge. You couldn't get enough knowledge into me. And by the time I got to the last two years, I was doing independent study work that was above what most of the professors could even understand. And that's not because I was smart. That was just because God was doing a work in me, something that I've been pouring back out to people for years now. But I was soaking up just tons and tons of information. And I was totally willing to work. Three times, and I said it from the very beginning, if we ever couldn't make our bills, I would go out and get a job. That was not a problem for me. I didn't have an issue with that. Three times, now listen to this, three times I went out. I put my resume together. We were getting tight. Looked like we couldn't make bills next month. I went out with the resume I'm telling you, three times I went out and gave resumes out to try and get a job. And literally by the time I got home, there was an answer that made it to where I didn't need the job. Two times, God told me beforehand, it's going to get tight, but I don't want you to do anything. I want to teach you something. So just hang in there. Now that's just those four years. In the next three years, that's where I did work the 18 months. In the next three years when I was in Hollywood and I was trying to provide for myself and so on. And, and again, there was probably during that period of time, there was probably 30 or so miracles that kept me to where I could really pursue this full time. And at the end of three years, I'd know that I had every opportunity I could and it was time to move on. And then I went and worked at a church. And for those next three years, I, the church was poor and they didn't have any money. And, and I knew that they would, couldn't afford me. And I said, you know what? I feel like I'm supposed to do this for the rest of my life. And I went out and I raised support. And we probably had 60 people over those three years that supported us in some significant fashion to where my kids were in private Christian school and I'm not again I'm telling you there were certain seasons where you know there was a lot of poverty there but overall you look at those 10 years and you'd have to say for the average person we lived okay 
10 years, no income. That those last three years, by the way, Julie worked a little, actually for more of them, but she didn't even get close to covering what we needed to live. Here's why I'm telling you this. When I talk to you about what God's saying and all this stuff, when, when God says something like, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, I wasn't presumptuous. I didn't go out and say, this is what I'm going to do and God's going to provide for me. I mean, I sought the Lord. And I was willing to do whatever else. But the fact is, is I sought him. He added everything to me. For 10 years. Actually longer than that because it was another three years in Jackson, but that was just a different thing and so I'm not lumping it in there. I'm standing here and I'm telling you, if you don't believe that this stuff is true, then you have to get through me. Because I'm telling you it is true. I've had some problems, and I wouldn't call them big problems, but there's people that have worked with me on councils and other things that have felt like my understanding of money and stuff was a little sketch. But I just have to tell you, I learned something about the things of God that I can't get rid of because he built it into me over a period of 10 years. Can I tell you something else? More than once the Lord has reminded me that one of the reasons why I experienced those 10 years was because for about 10 years before that, it wasn't that long, but probably six or seven years, I was a giver. A cheerful, loving, full-on giver. And then when push came to shove and it was time for something else to happen, I felt very, very definitely, I didn't earn it, but I felt very definitely that I had put myself solidly in this kingdom. I gave everything to him. And then he provided for me. He does tell us, as a little bit of a warning, if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, if you don't understand it, by the way, this is in one of those most difficult parables, right? The guy that was cheating his boss. And the boss comes back and commends him, and the boss is clearly God. <laughs> right? He's commending him for cheating. This is the point of the parable. He's saying, look, if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who's going to trust you with true riches? If you don't get what it's about, if you don't get who I am, if you don't get what, how can I give you because it's going to only work to your harm? It's not going to bless you to win the lottery. It's going to kill you. See it? Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, be poured into your lap. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And I'm telling you, I am a testimony of the truth of that scripture. It's not just a printed word and a fanciful idea. It's something that I've lived and I stand before you today in the Lord to tell you to start trusting him.